Our subject for this hour is the eternal sonship of Christ, and it's a tricky subject. This is the one major doctrine that I know of where John MacArthur actually changed his view after several years of teaching otherwise, and he formally retracted his earlier position uh, after spending years defending incarnational sonship. And uh, let me explain what that means just by quoting some words from a document John MacArthur wrote in the 1980s. This, This was his old view. This is the view he later retracted. He wrote, Christ is not eternally subservient to God, less than God, under God in rank, but sonship is an analogy to help us understand Christ's essential relationship and willing submission to the Father for the sake of our redemption. The today of Hebrews 1 verse 5 shows that his sonship began in a point of time rather than in eternity. Now notice, when John wrote on that issue, he was careful to defend the deity of Christ and the principle of absolute equality and unity between the persons of the Trinity. He still holds to those views uh, today. But he was arguing against a, a really bad idea that has since gained some traction and it's caused a considerable amount of controversy in the evangelical community, namely this idea that the second person of the Trinity is eternally, functionally subordinate to God the Father. John was rightly rejecting that view, and he further wrote this, quote, Christ was not by nature eternally subordinate to God the Father, but was equal to Him, Yet he willingly submitted himself to the Father during his incarnation as an obedient son does to an earthly father. That, of course, is true. But unfortunately, uh, John was using a kind of unorthodox idea to defend that point of orthodoxy. He was treating Christ's sonship and his humanity as, as if they were synonymous. He was suggesting that the, the, the name Son of God was a title that didn't actually apply to Jesus until the incarnation. In other words, he rejected the eternal sonship of Christ. And that sounds a whole lot more sinister than it is. Bear in mind, he wasn't questioning the deity of Christ or the eternality of Christ. He was treating Jesus' sonship as a role that the second person of the Trinity entered into rather than saying Son of God is a name that is definitive of Christ's eternal character. So this wasn't Arianism or even a similar heresy. You you normally don't see John MacArthur flirting with fringe ideas. And this one wasn't an idea that he cooked up independently of anyone else. It's true that there have been a small minority of Protestant theologians who have taken that same position, that Sonship was a role that Christ entered to in his incarnation. There are also, however, some pretty unorthodox theologians who have championed that view. And so uh, John got a lot of criticism for it. Sometime in the mid-90s, John decided to study that whole question again. And in August of 1999, he published a formal retraction. We put it online at the Grace to You website. It's still there today. It explains why he abandoned his earlier view on this question and, and now f- fully affirms the eternal sonship of Christ. And in it, that written retraction, John said this, quote, I am now convinced that the title Son of God, when applied to Christ in Scripture, always speaks of his essential deity and his absolute equality with God, not his voluntary subordination. If you're interested, you can still read John's full retraction for yourself. If you want to see, in fact, a very classy way of recanting something that you once taught and no longer hold to, just do a Google search for this article. It's titled, Reexamining the Eternal Sonship of Christ, and it's at the Grace to You website. John's earlier view on incarnational sonship hinged mainly on that verse that he cited, Hebrews 1 verse 5, which is a quotation from Psalm 2-7, where it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as John points out, that, and these are his words again, quote, that verse presents some very difficult concepts. In addition to the temporal overtones of the word today, the word begetting normally speaks of a person's origin. But, John wrote, it is now my conviction 
that the begetting spoken of in Psalm 2 and in Hebrews 1 is not an event that takes place in time. Now, I want to explain why John came to that conclusion and why we believe and teach that the eternal sonship of Christ is actually a pretty important doctrine. And I want to start with that troublesome verse, Hebrews 1, verse 5. We're going to focus mainly on the first half of the verse. I wish we could cover the whole thing. We really don't have time. Uh, but that first half of the verse is a quotation, as I said, from Psalm 2-7. And we're going to consider some very significant questions. Namely, what is the nature of Jesus' eternal relationship to his heavenly Father? Also, if we, you and I, believers, are called children of God, how is Jesus' sonship unique? And what does the term Son of God mean with regard to the Savior's eternality and His divine power? And here's perhaps the hardest question of all. What does Scripture mean when it says Jesus is begotten by the Father? Those are hard questions. But I want to emphasize also, this is not just arcane and esoteric doctrine reserved for theology geeks. These are truths that you really do need to know. What we're going to deal with in this hour is a pivotal point of Trinitarian theology. Now, I don't know what drew you to this seminar. I'm, I'm not sure, like I said, I'm not sure the subject would pique the interest of most church leaders. So I think already you guys are extraordinary. Uh, nevertheless, you might wonder if the eternal sonship of Christ has any obvious practical application to your real life and ministry. And the answer is yes, it does. And in fact, let's all of us bear in mind that there is no doctrine in the Bible that is so abstract that it has no practical significance. Everything in the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we tend to categorize truth these days as either doctrinal or practical, as if those were totally separate categories. But the Apostle Paul was expressly telling Timothy that all Scripture is profitable for both doctrine and instruction in righteousness. And furthermore, as Paul himself says in Philippians 3 verse 8, the whole aim and the ultimate reward of our faith is the surpassing worth knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so there is no truth about Jesus that doesn't deserve our full attention, and there's no truth about Jesus that doesn't have practical implications. At the very least, what we believe about Christ defines who we worship, and it will affect how we worship. So let's look at the context of Hebrews 1 and watch the logical flow of the text. I'm, I'm, in a minute, I'm going to read the whole chapter, Hebrews 1, but, and it's a short one. I do want to focus mainly on that first part of verse 5, but before I start reading, what I want to do is survey with you the argument that's being made here so that you can follow the logic Better. So here's an overview of Hebrews 1. I hope you have your Bibles open. Watch the text and follow along with me. Verses 1 and 2 are an emphatic declaration that Christ is the capstone of God's revelation to humanity. He is the very incarnation of truth from God to us. Throughout the Old Testament era, God revealed truth to humanity through prophets and dreams and various other means. But now he has sent his own son, who is the consummate, full, and final self-revelation of God to the world. And that's his introduction to the book. That short introduction establishes and introduces the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And the whole book then becomes a, an extended series of biblical proofs showing that Christ is the fulfillment of every truth that was ever hinted at or foreshadowed in all the types and figures of the Old Testament. The incarnate Son of God is the resolution and the unveiling of every mystery that was ever set forth in the Old Testament. And He is the answer to every essential question that was left hanging when the canon of Old Testament revelation was complete. That's, that's what He's saying here in this book. The author of Hebrews is going to give a, a long series of arguments reaching back into the Old to prove that point, but he begins with an emphatic declaration of the deity of Christ. It's the whole theme of 
chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Hebrews is a vigorous affirmation of the deity and the eternality of Christ. That's its central theme. And in order to prove that point, he argues that Christ is superior to the angels. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? Because the angels are the highest of all created beings in the universe. The cherubim and seraphim are some of the highest-ranking angelic creatures, and they permanently guard the throne room of God, and they themselves are engaged in perpetual worship. Even the archangels are engaged in worship. And notice verse 6, when the Father brings Christ into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The fact that the angels worship him proves the deity of Christ. Angels worship him. And so the writer then goes on to make a series of similar points. Angels are created. Christ is the creator. Verses 2 and 3. He created the world and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Angels are God's servants. Christ is God's son. Verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? The angels offer God worship, as you see in verse 6. Christ receives worship even from God the Father. Verse 8, of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and on and on. So nothing and no one in the universe is greater than Christ. That's, stop it. Siri just yelled at me. (laughs) I hate when she does that. I'm going to turn her off. Where was I? So nothing and no one in the universe is greater than Christ. That's the starting point of the book of Hebrews. And the rest of the book is about the superiority of Christ. He is higher than the angels. He's superior to the Old Testament priesthood. He atoned for sins once and for all in contrast to the blood of millions of bulls and goats, which could never actually take away sin. And according to Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12, he rises above every priest who stands daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is meticulously making just one argument from start to finish in this book, namely that Christ is better in every way than all the elements of Old Testament religion combined. And here is how chapter 1 introduces that theme. Chapter 1, verse 1, I'll read the whole chapter. It's a short one. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that's Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, I assume most of you know the background of this book, but here's a summary. This letter was written to be circulated among Jewish converts to Christianity in the first century church. And it becomes evident through the course of this epistle that what motivates the writer to send this letter around was an epidemic of apostasy. He's writing to persuade half-hearted people and hangers-on not to fall short of coming to authentic saving faith. Why were so many people abandoning the faith? It seems clear that at this point in early church history, the threat of persecution against Christians 
was intense. Hebrews 13.23, the end of this book, mentions that Timothy had recently been released, uh, suggesting that he had been, Timothy had been imprisoned for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And in fact, the first great worldwide persecution against Christians was instigated by Nero to take the focus off himself after a great fire had devastated Rome in July of AD 64. And most historians, you know, think he probably set the fire himself because he thought parts of Rome were just slums and he wanted to replace them with glorious buildings befitting the glory of Nero's empire. And so this was his depraved urban renewal scheme burn it down. And when the fire got out of hand and became a devastating conflagration, Nero needed someone to blame, and so he blamed the Christians because they were unpopular already anyway. And that unleashed a a vicious assault against Christianity that stretched from one end of the empire to the other, starting around AD 65. And then just five years later, AD 70, the Roman army laid siege to Jerusalem. Titus and his army utterly leveled the Jewish temple, destroyed Jerusalem. They, they literally reduced the temple to gravel, destroyed the city. Millions of Jews were exiled to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire. Families were separated, and, and with the temple in ruins, all the distinctive ceremonies and the ritualism of the Old Testament sacrificial system abruptly came to an end, and the temple and the Levitical system of sacrifices have never been restored even to this day. So we have these time clues. When Hebrews was written, Timothy had been released. The temple obviously had not been yet destroyed, uh, which means... This book, Hebrews, was most likely written at some point in a three-year window after A.D. 67 and before A.D. 70, which would explain the apostasy epidemic. It was costly at that time to be a Christian and dangerous. Political pressure from Rome was building. The cultural and social pressure from Rome uh, on Jewish converts to Christianity, not just from Rome, but also from the Jewish community. Enormous pressure. The the Jews who had converted to Christianity were seen as traitors, bringing shame on an already beleaguered culture. And, And during that time, nothing was more politically incorrect than simply being a Christian. And so despite the release of Timothy, persecution of Christians at this time was intensifying. And so feeling all of that hostility, people were leaving the church to go back to their Jewish roots. Their connection to Christ was, in the first place, obviously only superficial, perhaps sentimental, half-hearted. They surely knew that the Christian message was true because they had at least made the pretense of believing. They wanted the promise of the gospel, but they hadn't yet truly counted the cost put their hand to the plow, repented of their sins, and ceased from striving to establish righteousness of their own through the law. In other words, they hadn't entered yet into the Sabbath rest, salvation in Christ. And that is exactly how this writer says it in Hebrews 4 verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And Hebrews 4, verses 10 and 11, whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest. And I think, frankly, that the visible church in every generation, including ours, probably includes more fake disciples than most of us imagine. You know, people who haven't ceased from their self-efforts, and therefore they've not truly entered into salvation, which is the true Sabbath rest of God. And these half-hearted Hebrews who were bailing out were exactly like thousands of those disciples in John 6 who followed Christ at first because they were fascinated by His miracles, but they turned away as soon as He offended them with His teaching. Dull-hearted disciples half-hearted hangers-on, superficial saints who hadn't yet fully embraced Christ 
with wholehearted faith. And that is what the famous warning passages that are scattered through the book of Hebrews are all about. There are five places in the book of Hebrews where the author interrupts his long argument about the superiority of Christ in order to give a passionate warning about the dangers of drifting away from Christ. I know most of you are familiar with these passages. The writer interjects these warnings that increase in intensity at Hebrews 2 verses Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 the second one comes Hebrews 3 verse 7 through 4 verse 13 Hebrews 5:11 through 6:12 Hebrews 10:19 through 39 and then all of Hebrews 12 and if you trace those warnings up through chapter 10, you'll see that each warning becomes more severe than the previous one. But then that final warning in chapter 12 is an extended, earnest word of encouragement to take this message seriously, he's saying, and come to God with genuine, humble, repentant faith and trembling fear because our God is a consuming fire. And that's where all those warnings culminate. So the first Four of the warning passages stress the threat of judgment for people who refuse to hear or obey. And then the fifth one is more of a a plea. All the warnings are for the benefit of these almost Christians. The writer is urging them to weigh the profound gravity of our duty before God and respond with reverence and awe, genuine repentance. But the rest of the epistle, does the sound keep cutting out? I hate that. I thought at first it was my ears playing tricks on me. I don't know why that's doing that, but hopefully it will stop now. Where was I? So uh, the rest of this epistle is showing us the superiority of Christ. And it's filled with Old Testament quotations because the writer wants to prove to his Jewish readers that Christ is greater than any aspect of their religious traditions. He's, He's greater than their cultural heritage. He's greater than the Mosaic Covenant. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the sacrificial system. In short, Christ is greater than all the religious protocols of the Old Covenant era. Even the unsophisticated simplicity of Christian worship is actually superior to all the liturgy and pageantry, the pomp and circumcision of Old Testament Judaism. And so that is the main message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is superior to everything else in the universe because, after all, Christ is the one who made everything else. And the writer makes that point at the very start, verses 2 or 3 of our text. And then the rest of chapter 1 shows with a series of Old Testament references that Christ is superior even to the angels who are the most powerful creatures God ever made. And again, all of this adds up to one crystal clear, profound declaration that Christ is God. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And more than that, he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. Now think about it. Only God could do that. It would be blasphemy to say that anyone but God is upholding the universe by his own power. That would be blasphemy. In Psalm 75 verse 3, Yahweh speaks and he says, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants It is I who keeps steady its pillars. So the Old Testament is clear. Just like John said this morning, the whole Old Testament is clear. This verse is particularly clear in saying that it is God who upholds the universe. And then Hebrews 1 says, and that's actually Christ doing that. Colossians 1.17 affirms that this is Christ's role. In him all things hold together. In other words, he is God. He's the one who holds the universe together. And what's more, the Father expressly addresses him, speaks to him as God. Verse 8, of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Where is that throne right now? Verse 3 tells us, Christ has finished his atoning work, he's ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the writer here clearly has Psalm 110 in mind. 
It's one of the great Messianic Psalms, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it repeatedly throughout this whole book. This is what he is alluding to in verse 3. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in fact, the author of Hebrews quotes that very verse from Psalm 110 near the end of our chapter, verse 13, to which of the angels did he ever say this? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the point he's making is that Christ occupies a position that is higher than any merely created being, including the very highest of the archangels. In other words, Christ, as the creator of all things, cannot himself be a created being. If he is a created being, he didn't create all things. It's common sense, isn't it? So he's saying he is God. And the writer of Hebrews then further proves the point with a carefully chosen array of Old Testament quotations. He is writing to people who wanted to return to the Old Testament forms and traditions. And so he shows them that the Old Testament itself points us to Christ. By the way, the Old Testament references in the book of Hebrews are, I think, some of the same, they must be, some of the very same verses, Old Testament texts, that Jesus himself explained to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later that same evening, with the 11 faithful disciples alone in a room with him, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You ever wished you could eavesdrop on that conversation with Jesus about the Old Testament? Well, here I am certain are some of the texts Jesus was explaining to them. Now, pay close attention to the argument here. Jesus does the works of God, verses 2 and 3, created the world and he upholds the universe by his power. He has a permanent position where no lesser being has any right to be, verse 3, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now verse 4, and this introduces us to the point we want to talk about. The name Jesus has inherited is a more excellent name than any name ever given to the angels. And in fact, the superiority of the name our writer has in mind is a measure of Christ's superiority over the angels. So what is that name? Well, it's one you know because It is the name for Jesus that's used in the most familiar verse of Scripture. He is the only begotten Son of God. That's the name. God's only begotten Son. That's it. That Jesus is God's only begotten Son. That's the name he has in mind. Now, just an an aside. If you have the ESV, and that's what I've been reading from, John 3.16 says, God gave his only Son. And the NIV says, he gave his only one and only Son. And, but the King James Version, the New King James Version, and the NASB all say He gave His only begotten Son. And let me explain why there's a difference. The Greek word in that verse is monogenes. Monogenes, it's a Greek term that can either mean one of a kind or only begotten. And in fact, it means both things simultaneously. Because it's never used of anything other than sons or daughters. And it always signifies an only child. Luke uses it three chapters in a row in the Gospel of Luke, where he relates a series of narratives about how Jesus healed people. In Luke 7, verse 12, Jesus raises from the dead a young man whom Luke says is the only son of his mother. Monogenes, he uses that word. He's the, her one and only child, her only begotten son. And then the next chapter, Luke 8, verse 42, Jesus is met by Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who begs Jesus to come to his house because, Luke says, he had an only daughter and she was dying. Again, monogenes, his only child. And then Luke chapter 9, the very next ver- chapter, behold, a man from, this is verse 38 of Luke 9, behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Again, monogenes, that's the Greek word there. So you see how this word is always used. Wherever you and I would speak of someone as an only child, the Greeks said monogenes. 
Now, I actually prefer the translation only begotten because it highlights what it is that makes Jesus unique. Because think about it, there are many sons of God. You and I are called God's children by adoption. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Romans 8.14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Even the angels are called sons of God three times in the book of Job. So how is Christ the one and only Son of God? How can that title establish the fact that He is greater than the angels? The writer of Hebrews answers that question again, verse 5, with a quotation from Psalm 2. This is where he quotes, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is Psalm 2, verse 7, and this is the voice of Christ in the psalm speaking prophetically. He says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there is that word, begotten, and it's an important one. The Greek term there is geneo, begotten, and that's the root of part of the word monogenes, mono, you know, one, geneo, monogeneo, monogenes. It's clearly speaking of begetting. Now, this is vital. No one else ever is said to be begotten by God, not even the Holy Spirit. This is what makes Christ unique, one of a kind. That's the whole point the writer of Hebrews is saying. More on it in a minute. But what that expression means, only begotten, is that Christ is God's Son by nature, not by adoption, not by appointment, not by creation, not by His conception in Mary's womb. This position, Son of God, is not a role he assumed at his incarnation, because that wouldn't be, if that's all it meant, it wouldn't be any proof that Christ is greater than the angels. But this is a description of Christ's very essence. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's who he is in essence, Son of God. He is from eternity past to eternity future, the only begotten Son of God. And His eternal glory rests in that reality, according to John 1.14. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So that term, only begotten Son, refers to the divine glory of Christ. It's not about His incarnation. As a man, begotten by the Holy Spirit, not by the Father, but a man begotten by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Christ had no distinctive glory. He was truly human. In fact, His glory as God's Son was veiled under His humanity. Isaiah 53, verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. The glory that shone on the Mount of Transfiguration was divine glory. That glory was the proof that He is God incarnate. And John underscores that when he says it was glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And he's saying, this is the glory of God. And so it's clear, isn't it, that the begetting spoken of in Hebrews 1.5 pertains to the deity of Christ. It's not about His humanity. It sets Him apart from every created being. It exalts Him as God even above the angels. And this is the one truth that explains the eternal and ineffable glory of Christ. He is begotten of the Father. Now, don't miss the point here. The writer of Hebrews is citing Psalm 2, verse 7 as proof that Jesus is God. And the context of Hebrews 1 makes that point inescapable. It's what the whole chapter is saying. He's God. Look again at all the declarations of Christ's deity in this chapter. We've already noted most of them, but here's a list in order. Jesus created the world, verse 2. He is not only the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, but He also upholds the universe by the word of His power, verse 3. The Father calls for Him to be worshipped even by the angels, verse 6. The Father addresses Him as God, and He receives praise from the Father, verses 8 and 9. And His throne, and therefore He Himself, are eternal, according to verse 8. And if you doubt whether the expression 
forever and ever in verse 8 includes eternity past. Just look at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. In other words, in eternity past. So every created thing is the work of his hands. Verse 10 purposely echoes Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the writer of Hebrews uses every key expression you find in that opening verse of Scripture. In the beginning, heavens and earth. He's actually quoting from Psalm 102, verse 25. And he says, this is the voice of the Father attributing the work of creation to Christ. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. That's talking from God to Christ about the creation event described in Genesis 1.1. Jesus did it. And verses 11 and 12 here in Hebrews 1 continue with a verbatim quote from Psalm 102. Again, this is God the Father praising God the Son, affirming not only his role as creator, but also his eternality and his immutability. Those are incommunicable attributes of deity. And so this entire chapter is an extended, emphatic affirmation of the deity of Christ, By the way, this is a good chapter to show Jehovah's Witnesses when they come and want to argue about the deity of Christ. You know, they're pretty thoroughly prepared on how to deflect the truth of John 1.1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They've been told that an indefinite article belongs in that final phrase. So in their Bible version, it says the Word was a God. And they won't listen to you much about that. But most Jehovah's Witnesses don't have a canned response to Hebrews chapter 1. They teach that Christ is an angel, that he's the ultimate archangel. The whole point of this chapter is that Christ is superior to any merely created angel. Even the Father addresses him as God in verse 8. Show that to the Jehovah's Witness. You can't deal honestly and carefully with this chapter and come away denying the deity of Christ. It's the whole point the writer is making. And in the process, he lays the foundation for one of the most important truths of Trinitarian doctrine, namely the eternal sonship of Christ. He he holds up the twin truths of Christ's sonship and his deity, and he affirms them both, and in fact, He regards the sonship of Christ as one of the key proofs of Jesus' deity. That, by the way, is how everyone in first century Judaism would have seen it. To say that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God is to say he is absolutely equal to God in his divine nature and his authority. Let me be clear here. There is not a hint of subordination in the designation only begotten Son. It's an expression that denotes not subordination, but absolute equality. Father and Son are one in essence, and they are one in rank and privilege. They are equal in every sense. And every person in any first century Middle Eastern culture understood that. A son is deserving of the very same respect and honor as the father. You dishonor the son, you dishonor the father. That's how that culture worked. And you can see that in the Gospels. The the Jews would sometimes speak of God as our Father in the collective sense, like in Isaiah 63, verse 16, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. Or Malachi 2.10, Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? So they saw themselves collectively as children of God, just like you and I do. We are God's children first of all, by creation and then by redemption, but we are not sons by birthright. We're not. We are made by him, and we have been purchased by him, and we are therefore owned by him, and he loves us, but we are his adopted children and members of his household in that limited sense. No pious Jew would ever refer to God as his own father. The casual familiarity that's implied in that expression was offensive to them. Even more than that, to say, God is my Father, to to claim to be the only begotten Son of the Father was to claim prerogatives that simply don't belong to any mere man. And again, everyone in the ancient Near East 
saw it that way. They instantly understood that Jesus' claim that he was the one-of-a-kind, only-begotten Son of God was the same thing as him saying he's equal to God. And that comes out clearly in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where some Jewish religious leaders were grousing, you know, about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father is working till now, and I am working. My father, he says. So John says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Listen to this, making himself equal with God. So the expression son of God, in the sense it's applied to Jesus as the only begotten son of God, is a title of deity. It's a a declaration that the incarnate Christ is equal in rank and authority to God. And the idea of this quote from Psalm 2-7 in in Hebrews 1-5 is not to say that Jesus was conceived and born as a human in order to step into a human role. The whole point he's making is that Jesus is eternally the Son of God, one in nature with the Father, equal in authority with the Father, worthy of worship the same as the Father. So, back to verse 5 now. Let's get into this verse. And let's candidly admit that there are some hard questions we need to answer if we look at this passage closely. In fact, here are the questions I'll bet you're wondering about if you're really following this. How can we say Christ is begotten if he eternally existed? If self-existence is an attribute of deity, how can he be both God and begotten of the Father? And, And when did this begetting take place? The text says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does that word today refer to? Because it seems to fix a point in time. When did this occur? And incidentally, this is not the only time Psalm 2, verse 7 is quoted in Scripture. It's quoted again by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5. Also, you find it in Acts chapter 13, when the Apostle Paul is preaching in a synagogue at Antioch, and he gives an abbreviated history of the saving work of God. And then he says this in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. He says, and we bring you the good news that What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And some commentators look at that and conclude that Acts 13.33 is teaching that the day that's referred to in Psalm 2 must be the day of Christ's resurrection, because he quotes, he mentions the resurrection, then quotes that text as a reference to it. But that view has some really difficult problems, some serious problems, because it implies then that Christ was not truly, or at least not in the fullest sense, a father to Christ until Jesus rose from the dead, which is literally what this verse says, if today refers to the first Easter Sunday. You know, now that you've risen from the dead, I've become your father. Some commentators, Albert Barnes, for example, takes that view. In his commentary on Acts 13.33, Barnes writes this, It is evident that Paul is saying that the Lord Jesus is called the Son of God because he raised him from the dead, and that he means to imply that it was for this reason that he is so called. Barnes says, This interpretation of an inspired apostle fixes the meaning of this passage in the psalm, and it proves that this doesn't have anything to do with the idea of eternal sonship, and it doesn't connect Jesus' sonship to his incarnation. But, says Barnes, it proves that he is called God's son because he is raised from the dead. That's a really bad analysis of Acts 13. In case you wonder, I don't generally recommend Albert Barnes, even though his commentary is generally considered to be a classic. He does occasionally have some helpful insights, but he was a lousy theologian. And he tended to read his own warped doctrinal ideas back into the biblical text. This is a classic example of what I mean. He rejected the eternal sonship of Christ, and that colors his interpretation of that psalm. Paul himself actually explains what, he, what the connection is between the sonship of Christ and the resurrection, but he makes that explanation in a different context. In Romans 1, verse 4, he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God 
in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That, by the way, is one of the great Trinitarian verses of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit declared that Christ is eternally a son to the Father by raising him from the dead. All three members of the Trinity appear there. Jesus was irrefutably singled out as the one true Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And Paul uses a word that means marked out or highlighted, literally singled out and made conspicuous by the resurrection from the dead. What the resurrection did was signify that Jesus Christ and He alone is the one true, eternal, only begotten Son of God. I hope you see the point. If the name Son is proof of Jesus' deity, and remember that is exactly the argument being made in Hebrews 1, then his sonship cannot be a role that he stepped into at some point in time. Otherwise, sonship would pertain only to his humanity, because as God, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he is if sonship refers to his deity, it's an eternal name that applies to him. In other words, there was no point in time when Jesus became a son. And the language of Scripture repeatedly affirms this. The New Testament says repeatedly that God sent forth his son. That's Galatians 4 verse 4. God sent his only son into the world, 1 John 4 9. And verse 10, he sent his son to be the propitiation for sins. And again in verse 14, the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John 3.16, God gave His only begotten Son. Romans 8.3, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced sin. And verse 32, God did not spare His own Son. Put all those verses together, they're all saying the same thing. Not that Christ was sent from heaven to step into a new role as God's Son. God didn't send Him to become a Son. None of those verses say the Savior was sent to become a son. They say the Son was sent to become a Savior. And also, by logical necessity, if Christ wasn't a son until his incarnation, then the Father wasn't even a father yet when he sent him. New Testament says repeatedly, a dozen times or more, that he is God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or it calls him God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the formal names for God the Father. Now, think this through. If God is called Father, it presupposes that he has a son. It's reciprocal, unless you're prepared to argue that paternity is not uh, an eternally defining property of God the Father, you cannot deny the eternal sonship of Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Rip that verse out of context, and you might think it's suggesting that Christ had a beginning. Firstborn of all creation. But remember that Christ is the one who made every created being. The next verse, Colossians 1.16 says so. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And that agrees with John 1 verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So he cannot be a created being. John 1 verse 2, he was in the beginning. Again, that's a biblical term signifying eternity past. He was in the beginning with God. This is expressly affirming his eternality. And if you put all that together with the expression only begotten, it should be clear that both the Greek term monogenes and Colossians 1.15, firstborn of all creation, these are affirming the eternal generation of God's Son. More about that term in a minute, eternal generation. But the fact is, if you do away with this doctrine, the eternal generation of Christ, you destroy the familial relationship that defines the Trinity. You turn the father-son relationship into nothing more than a temporary metaphor. Now, I'll admit, I didn't always see things that clearly. When I began to study this doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ intently, it took me a while to understand this is not one of those truths that is immediately obvious or easily explained. And it's not an easy concept 
to wrap your brain around because to our finite minds, just the word begetting, that whole idea, begetting, speaks of the person's origin. If he's an eternal being, he has no origin. After all, you and I were begotten as zygotes. So how can someone who is God, with no beginning, no end, how can he be begotten, not as a man, but as God, eternally? It's just not an easy doctrine. It deals with ineffable truth. What can this word begotten possibly mean in relationship to someone who is the same yesterday and today and forever? How can he be both eternal and begotten? Now, obviously, that's not a new or novel question. Biblically-minded theologians have taught and defended the eternal sonship of Christ for 2,000 years. Augustine said it like this. He said, God the Father begot the Son outside of time. In the language of the original Nicene Council, Christ was begotten, not made, That's a purposeful use of biblical language, and everywhere you find that language in Scripture, the point being made, when Christ is called only begotten Son of God, the point that's being made is that the Father and the Son are of one substance. They are eternally equal. That's the only point that's being made there. It's not about the origin of Christ. The Sonship of Christ is not also about His earthly submission as a man. Now, let's come back to this term, eternal generation. Twice you've heard me use that technical term, theologians coined, to explain the timeless relationship between father and son, eternal generation. Spurgeon said about that term, he said, quote, I confess that there's a mystery here which I can neither understand nor explain, but, he said, Scripture teaches it, and I unhesitatingly believe it. He also said, This is Spurgeon. The mysterious doctrine of the Trinity and the equally mysterious and sublime doctrine of eternal generation are best let alone by feeble minds. He said, I do not think there are a half dozen men alive who ought to meddle with the eternal sonship of Christ. Now, Spurgeon wasn't suggesting that you and I shouldn't study these doctrines. He's saying the same thing Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, where, where Peter says there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand, and the ignorant and unstable tend to twist those doctrines to their own destruction. This is graduate-level doctrine, and it is not a suitable place for anyone to experiment with creative theology. Trinitarian doctrine is not a safe playground for theological novices. But does it seem like to you that every dilettante dabbler in doctrine is just itching to take the things in Scripture that are the most difficult to understand and come up with new ideas about them? That always happens. It's a bad idea. And Spurgeon was pointing out the folly of small-minded people and hobbyists who think they can improve historic Christianity's long-standing creeds by twisting and tweaking and tinkering with doctrines that they clearly haven't even begun to grasp. Spurgeon said that kind of small-minded theological tampering saddens the humble-minded and it affords enlightenment to no one. I made some comments like that in a sermon recently, and that sermon found its way online. And I was surprised at the number of people who responded angrily to the idea that it's unwise to think that anyone and everyone should feel free to rewrite doctrinal standards that have been universally affirmed by the people of God for centuries, especially if you're unlearned and unstable, and you're dealing with things that, in the Apostle Peter's words, are hard to be understood. So let me be clear. I am not saying you need academic credentials to handle doctrine. For me, that would be the epitome of hypocrisy. I don't have a seminary degree. I've never been in a seminary classroom as a student. They don't let me come over there. (laughs) I would literally be the last person to discourage anyone, even the most callow neophyte, from exploring the deep things of God. Study these things. I'm, I'm just saying that when you get into the tabernacle of high doctrines, don't start rearranging the furniture. <laughs> we can't even wrap our feeble minds around the idea of eternity. 
But that obviously doesn't mean you can just discard the idea of infinity and and treat it as if it were irrational or unreasonable or absurd concept. And, And if you don't believe me, just try to conceive of a universe where everything is finite. You can't do it. So we're forced to acknowledge infinity while we have to admit that we can't comprehend the idea. The eternal generation of Christ by his Father is just like that. You have to acknowledge it. Don't expect to fully comprehend it. Psalm 2.7 and Hebrews 1.5 must be consistent with the rest of Scripture, and so we are forced to the conclusion that here at least, the word today is not signifying a point in time at all. This is speaking of an eternal reality described in finite language, and the expression this day speaks of the eternal now of a timeless God. It applies to every day in the realm of time, and also to the outermost extremes of eternity, both before and after time. And the context of the original psalm is actually consistent with that interpretation. Here's Psalm 2-7, the whole verse. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That, I am convinced, is speaking of the eternal decree of God. It belongs to the time before time, when there wasn't actually such a thing as today. Now, why do I say this is vital to our understanding of the Trinity? Remember what I said at the beginning? No one else besides the Son, including the Holy Spirit, is ever said to be begotten of the Father. In John 15, 26, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, He proceeds from the Father. And He uses an expression that in the Greek evokes the idea of breathing. The word for spirit is actually pneuma, a word that means breath. This breath proceeds from the Father. That's the picture you get. So in the same way the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. And those terms are vital to our understanding of the Trinity. You know, I hope, that the the three persons of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal, and they are of one substance. There's no eternal hierarchy of subordination and submission between them. I don't care how popular that idea has become lately. Scripture doesn't teach it. It teaches that the persons of the Trinity are equal in substance. They share the same essential attributes. They have one divine will and one divine purpose. Three persons in one divine being... We worship one God in three persons. But each person in the Godhead has a distinctive property. And those properties define their relationships. The Father is distinguished by paternity. He is unbegotten. The Son's distinctive property is filiation. That's a technical term for sonship. And the Spirit's property is spiration. That's a technical term for the action of breathing. So paternity, filiation, and spiration, those are the individual properties by which we know each of the three persons of the Trinity. One 19th century theologian describing this wrote that there are such properties and relations we know. What they are, we don't know. And I agree. And I would add that it's utterly foolish to dismiss or explain away important biblical truths just because they pose a challenge to our understanding. The generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit may mystify us, but these are clear and necessary biblical doctrines. Nobody made these up. They are revealed to us in Scripture. Furthermore, the eternal sonship of Christ is one of the definitional doctrines of biblical Trinitarianism. The contemporary evangelical movement's tendency to ignore or dismiss doctrines like this because they seem difficult is one of the reasons there is so much confusion about the Trinity nowadays. Novel ideas like eternal functional subordination and the growing popularity of oneness Pentecostalism. These are clear signs that there are too many people in the church today, including some people in positions of leadership and influence, who are not well taught regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet, there is no doctrine more essential to our confession of faith as Bible-believing Christians. These aren't truths we can brush aside as if 
They were too obscure or too arcane to be of any serious importance. The writer of Hebrews starts here precisely because no doctrine has more far-reaching significance and nothing has more serious practical implications than the issue of who we worship. Those people in the first century who were tempted to revert to Judaism hadn't yet grasped that to walk away from Christ was to turn away from God himself. The full truth of Trinitarian doctrine had been revealed to them. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. That's 1 John 4, 9. And, and, and John five twenty three. Jesus himself said, it's our duty as believers to honor the son just as we honor the father. And then he added, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. John 15, 23, whoever hates me hates my fathers also. First uh, John two twenty three. No one who denies the Son has the Father. And Second John nine. Whoever does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In other words, you can't turn away from Christ or deny His deity or neglect to honor Him in the same way you honor the Father. If you do, you're turning away from the true God. In other words, this is not just some abstract, arcane, impractical, insignificant doctrine. Those who refuse to honor the Son as they honor the Father do not have God at all. And that includes Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ, theological liberals who portray Christ as a nice guy and a good teacher but not really God, Muslims, and everyone else who follows any non-Christian religion. They might say Jesus was a true prophet and a wise teacher, but they deny that he is God. And Jesus himself said, if you don't receive the Son, you cannot have the Father also. And so this doctrine has practical ramifications in the ultimate and eternal sense. You don't have saving faith at all until you confess that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, to save people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Romans 8.32, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. And that truth is so much richer when you grasp the fact that the eternal love that covenanted to save us is truly the eternal love of a perfect divine Father and His perfect divine Son. Once you grasp that, you can begin, begin perhaps to to have an inkling of what our salvation cost our Heavenly Father. Now, I need to stop there, but I want to add a footnote before I close, if you just bear with me here. Someone's going to ask why I didn't deal with the second half of verse 5, because it's another Old Testament quotation. This part comes from 2 Samuel 7.14 and also 1 Chronicles 17.13. Both verses say the same thing, where the Lord says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is actually part of the covenant God made with David regarding the perpetuity of the Davidic throne. And in the original Old Testament context, the statement seems to refer to Solomon. Both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, the verse just before that line, I will be to him a father, says, He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. So that's Solomon, right? That's what you would think as an Old Testament reader. So how does the writer of Hebrews say that's about Christ? Well, we don't have time for a full discussion of that, but here's the short answer. The Davidic and Solomonic dynasty established the earthly throne that Christ will one day occupy. And that promise hidden in the covenant was by God's own design and intention, a promise to Solomon that also looked beyond him and made reference to Christ. So it's like a figure of speech, a double entendre or something, a statement that purposely has twin meanings. I don't want to say it has two meanings, but it kind of does. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament author unveils the far-reaching significance of this statement. It is true in a limited sense about Solomon. But those words make an even larger statement about the eternal relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And that eternal father-son relationship is the whole basis of a covenant that was made between father and son, a covenant that they made in eternity past to purchase our salvation, which is what Titus chapter 1 verse 2 is describing when it says, God who never lies promised to give eternal life to his elect, 
before the ages began. Now think about that. If God promised salvation before the ages began, to whom did he make that promise? Because it took place before creation, before time began. It can only refer to a promise made between the Father and the Son. And so the eternal relationship between Father and Son is a vitally important doctrine that ultimately has major implications for the gospel. And that's why the Scriptures take great pains to inform us time and again that the one whom God sent to die for our sins was His only begotten Son. I hope you see the beauty and the majesty of that truth, and more than that, I hope you believe it. Shall we pray before I dismiss you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did send your only begotten Son into the world to make propitiation for our sins. Give us a fuller, richer knowledge of Christ, and may we never turn away from the truth of your word. May we never be apathetic about anything you've revealed to us. May we never settle for anything less than the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.